So we are going through talking about the Holy Spirit, and particularly how we don't necessarily know him the way that you would think that we know him. We oftentimes assume that we do, but then it turns out we, we seem to be shocked when we actually read what the Bible's saying about it. So, we've gone through a bunch of different things, looking at him uh, and, and, and what he's done before Pentecost, looking at him uh, at Pentecost, looking at what it means that we've been given new life, and, and what it means that, that God's Spirit is at odds with what we would naturally do in our flesh. So now we're kind of talking about, and, and what does that look like? Where the rubber hits the road, what does that, what does that actually mean? So, this is where things get kind of, kind of funky. Um, Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them. What does that, what does that mean exactly? Um, that the Holy Spirit would indwell them. Okay. <clears throat> and also, there are times when it, when it would overflow from them. Okay, overflow from them. And what kind of stuff does that do? What kind of stuff do we remember? What does that mean? Just the Holy Spirit is empowered. When we think about uh, the Spirit empowering people, when we think about the stuff that He's doing, what what does that uh, what does that tend to look like? What kinds of stuff. Well, it could be anything from um, healing someone to um, to having um, insight into someone's life, to having um, to being able to know what God wants to do to build the temple. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, or to like, the Holy Spirit also gives abilities such as the knowledge of how to build a temple, or um, the ability to kill a lot of Samson. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's an important qualifier. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but not like everybody gets no, to go and do that. No, yeah. Okay. Like, uh, now, last time we talked about from Ephesians three fourteen fourth through four six, looking at that, what it, it obviously means a lot of different things that he empowers you. But what was Paul praying about at the end of Ephesians three, beginning of Ephesians four? Pull out your bibles. Anybody remember? All right. You have access to a Bible, too. I know you are. I know you are. <laughs> Ephesians 3, 14 <coughs> through 4, 6. He prays specifically that the Spirit empowers us. How? Nancy, boy, you're struggling. I know. <laughs> oh, poor thing. All right, we'll tell you what. Um, So a few things about love, of being rooted and established in love, love surpassing knowledge. And being able to comprehend that love. Yeah. So he's praying specifically that the Spirit empowers you to love and understand God's love, which is not usually the sort of thing we think of. I mean, we it's not completely alien, but when I ask, you know, what kinds of ways does the Holy Spirit empower us, we think speaking in tongues, we think prophecies, we think... Uh, uh, amazing strength and dynamism when, when preaching, we think, because we've gone through this class, maybe we think, ah, Samson, you know, uh, the builders of the, of the, of the temple, etc. But Paul's specifically saying, Holy Spirit empowers our love, helps us to understand what love is. Looking at that again, how, how, what does that mean? How does he go about doing that? How did, does anybody remember, or if you weren't here, how can you figure out from Ephesians 3, 14 to 4 to 6, how, how does he actually... Help us do that. What kind of stuff. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit would empower us to love? Well, so in Ephesians 4, there's some adjectives that are listed. Uh, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make an effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Uh, so those are all at least some more, slightly more concrete examples of what that might look like. Being humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another. So, if you're unified in the Spirit, if, if the Spirit is working to unify you, that should bear itself out in those adjectives that you're talking about. Why, why is that? I mean, again, we, we talk about the Spirit doing a whole bunch of different things, but why is it so... Why is the Spirit emphasizing unity? Because... 
because that's where the spirit comes from, unity with the Father, Son, Holy yeah. Spirit, and we just work better that way. Well, yeah, I mean, there's one spirit, one God and Father of all, one baptism, one word, one, one, there's, it's all just one. He's not going to lead us in, in, in mutually exclusive directions and say, God, oh, arm wrestle about it. That's the best way to figure this out. And so uh, we talked about in Ephesians 3 especially how he's structurally changing us to be able to, to love the way that honors God, to even understand that sort of thing. And in Ephesians 4, he's talking about how to live some of that kind of stuff out. So with that in mind, thinking about Paul saying, well, one of the things I'm specifically praying for in terms of the spirit working in you is in your love. Let's look at the early church. Somebody do me a favor and read Acts 1, 1 through 8. First person to get there. Get I got it. Go for it. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote. Uh, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do uh, and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself uh, to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command uh, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, and He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so when we read through that, what detail or details jumped out at you, especially since we're talking about empowering by the Holy Spirit? I know you've heard that a little bit multiple times, but... Anything well, what jumped out is the Holy Spirit shows up way back in verse 2, mm -hmm. where after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So, but then he talks about giving the gift of the Holy Spirit in your own. So it's not like the Holy Spirit hasn't been around. I mean, people right. are like, well, Jesus was here, and then he can't be here at the same time as the Holy Spirit is. It's like, well, he said something akin to that, and people glom onto that where it's just like, well, if I don't go, he, he can't come, and people go, oh, they can't be in the same place at the same time. Well, clearly that's not what that meant. Um, so yeah, the Holy Spirit has been around, and even while Jesus is preaching, he's preaching and giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to them. Get that. What else? Any other details stand out to you? Or when you read this in general, what, what do you tend to think about? Jesus promises you're going to be baptized and the Holy Spirit's going to come on you with power. You're going to be my witnesses. I think of what a spectacle it is in many ways. He, he, he gives them instructions early on through the Holy Spirit and not in public, just as apostles uh, that he has chosen. And then later on, he has the Holy Spirit come on them in power in front of people. Okay, so how did the Holy Spirit come on them in power in a way that was a spectacle? The flames and the speaking tongues, tongues of fire. Mighty wind rushing through yeah. the room, yeah, that kind of stuff. Arguably the, the power of, of, of Peter's sermon, you know, the intensity of it. Okay, anything else? And days that followed healings. Yeah. Also, I, I kind of think about just the way that the early church acted, because they were all together in unity. Like that's what Paul tried to talk. You're cross applying the Ephesians. Yeah. Well, stop that. <laughs> okay. But we're talking specifically about empowering with the Holy Spirit, so it's not just. Could have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. But you're talking about the way they acted toward one another. Which could have been empowered. Yeah. No, no, finish your sentence. It could have been empowered by the Holy Spirit still. See, because we were talking about you know, the, the spectacle kinds of things and the healings and the flaming stuff and the tongues. And, let's keep going. 
We still we looked at this this section before, especially early on in this class. But I want to just look at it, two slightly different things here. Number one, what's the verb tense in at the beginning of uh, verse eight? There, what does he say? Does he does he say you may receive power? This is an option. You will. Okay. So he says, I urge you to receive the Holy Spirit, right? You will. How, how do you think that? How does that work? How do you link that with the concept of the natural fruit of the Spirit that we talked about from Galatians five or from Romans seven? Remember, what did we? Anybody remember anything we talked about when we talked about the fruit of the Spirit? It's one thing. Yeah, it's a singular thing. This is the fruit. It's not. It's not a whole bunch of fruits. This fruit. What's the, how does fruit work from a tree or from a bush or from a plant? It's a natural it just happens, right? You can facilitate it. You can certainly stunt it. But you, you can't make a tree make a, a, an apple. It's going to do it or it's not going to do it based on whether, whether or not it's an apple tree. Pardon. Yeah. So how, do you, how, does, how does that link to this? Fruit in the Spirit is the natural consequence of being filled with the Spirit. This is what's going to happen in your life. You're going to see this. If you don't see this in your life, one wonders if you have the Holy Spirit. One wonders if you're actually an apple tree, if all you do is keep producing plums. Um, how does it relate here to the fact that he says you will be filled with the Holy Spirit? You will receive the Spirit. He will come on you with power. Going to what's going? This is what's going to happen when that happens. Mm -hmm. This and also kind of almost serves as a litmus test for Christianity. Doesn't it? There would be a point where, where there's going to be apples popping off of apple trees. So, are you popping an apple off or not? You know, it, it does become something of a litmus test. I like that. But and, and normally when we look at this, we think of this as oh, this is going to come. Yay! This is exciting. But in this context, I wanted to remind us, he's like, oh no, this is, I'm not just assuring you because, oh, this will be great. I'm telling you, yes, this is what will happen, and you will have the Holy Spirit in you. Why did Paul feel the need to pray that they get it then? If, if the Holy Spirit naturally comes, if that's, if he says, if you're a Christian, you'll have the Holy Spirit, you'll be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why does Paul say, man, I hope he empowers you? Why does he have to Pray for that if it's a natural thing. Well, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Mm -hmm. But when um, when you are doing God's will, you may come upon you even more so and and give you more power to do something. He might be he might designate you for a specific purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. But Jesus is saying, no, this this will happen. You will receive power. Why would you ever need to pray for that? Okay, hint. Remember what I said about plants. They just naturally produce fruit, right? Therefore, farmers are pointless, right? What, what's the point of farmers? If grains naturally produce grains, why do we need farmers? Beyond just to grab the grains once they're there. To plant, to weave, to nourish, to water. Okay, so even though corn stalks naturally produce corn, and it's a bit of a litmus test to see if I planted corns or soybeans or whatever, because I, I really want corn out of this field. Um, you can facilitate this, right? You can enable this, and you can thwart it, can't you? Even if it naturally comes, you can... You can do things to make that easier or worse in your life, can't you? How could you, how could you thwart the move of the Spirit in your life? If the Holy Spirit indwells you, and if the Holy Spirit moves in you, and the, the guy that told us the most about that was Paul, right? About the Holy Spirit moving in you and working in you, and this is how the Holy Spirit acts. And yet he's also the one that told us you can thwart it. You can... You know, don't squelch the spirit, which suggests that apparently you you can squelch the spirit. So how? How might you go around 
squelching the spirit in yourself or others. By not reading the word or having fellowship. Yeah, you can kind of clog up the, 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 the pipes of the Holy Spirit in that respect. If you don't read the word, if you don't fellowship with others. What else? You can clog up your ears, and, and, and the Holy Spirit gets through to you, and you go, but I'm not listening. Okay, what else? Okay, yes, uh, there, there, there's a couple of different places where we can look to that analogy. What would that even look like? Putting a basket over your candle. And you're certainly not showing anybody. Anything else? I'm told that the tongues of the prophets are subject to... The prophet, right? I mean, God gives you the words, but we know. I mean, even even Jeremiah unsuccessfully squelched it, but really tried to, didn't he? It's like, I tried really hard not to say nothing, and it burned in me. I, I didn't want to say anything. Um, so you can absolutely sit there and go, oh, I'm being led by the Holy Ever felt led by the Holy Spirit? You always did what you felt led by the Holy Spirit to do? No. I just had a conversation with somebody the other day that, was weeping because they said, I felt totally led by the Holy Spirit to do something, didn't do it, and I've lost that chance forever. So, yeah. You can improve on your chances, you can undermine your chances, but none of that's on the Holy Spirit, because he's doing what he, what he said he was going to do, and what Christ said he was going to do. What's the verb tense in that second bit of chapter uh, 1, verse 8? You will receive power you will be my witnesses. You may end up being my witnesses. If I urge you to be my witnesses. You will receive power, and I urge you to be my witnesses. That makes logical sense, though, doesn't it? You, you will produce corn, being a stock of corn, and here's what I'd like you... No, here's what I'm commanding you to do with that corn, right? Is that what he's saying? No! What does he say? You will be my witnesses. Your life will always, by definition, show what it means to be a Christian to those around you. Do you agree? Do you agree or disagree with Jesus? <laughs> Wait, is that a loaded question? That's unfair. No. Do you agree or Do you agree or disagree that your life will always be a witness to what it means to be a Christian to those people around you? Yes, I agree. How so? I was thinking He was miserable, and as a result, nothing in Jonah's life was a witness to God's power, right? Because he went to Spain instead of Nineveh. Therefore, did not witness anything about God's power. Right? And the guys on the boats knew he was in the law. Yeah, they, they ended up making sacrifices to Yahweh, you know, becoming becoming followers of God, even though Jonah refused to do anything right in that process. You're always a witness. You just be a crappy one. Well, what would that be? What would it look like to be a bad witness? Okay, couldn't you be an... Uh, well, couldn't you be... Couldn't you just show nothing? Couldn't you be value neutral? But even value neutral is a, is a way of showing God's power. If you're value neutral about the living God, you're clearly showing what you think of God and what your faith means to you. How so? I mean, Chrissy's a non-Christian who lives near you. She never even knows that you're a Christian. How does that witness what it means to be a Christian? Exactly. <laughs> we just we talked about it before. Something like like only I think it's in the early teens now. Only something like 12, 13, 14% of Christians ever share their faith with somebody. So if you don't share your faith, if you never sit down and talk about the gospel with people, are you accurately showing people what American Christianity is all about? Sadly, maybe. You go well, but then you're not a witness. Oh, no, you are. You're an ambassador for the kingdom. Just the embassy's shuttered. It's not being very well taken care of. The outside is all beat up. Gates are all locked. And that's the embassy. It does, doesn't it? Now, you can sit there and feel horribly guilty about it, or you can go, you're right. I need to work to try to be a better witness. Or, if we're right, and no, no, this is a natural thing. It's just producing corn. The trick isn't to run around in your own strength to try to be a better witness. The trick is get out of your own way, right? Just clean out the pipes and 
let God work in you. It really actually does. Even the people that started this whole thing, didn't God even say, okay, don't sweat what you're going to say when they drag you in front of the courts and stuff. The Spirit will be there. He'll give you the words. Don't worry about that part. And they're facing, like, massive persecution and things. So I think the idea is, how about the thing I work on is, is less to be that awesome witness and more to just make sure that, you know, locusts aren't eating the corn before it has, has fruit. Maybe just maybe get rid of some of the weeds. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, water it every once in a while and feed it and nourish it with the word or interacting with what. Just get out of my own way. Why did Paul have to pray for us from this? Because we, we get in our own way. We clog up the works. We, we dirty up the mirror that's supposed to be reflecting Christ. We, we don't nourish the, what's supposed to be a natural fruit in our lives. There's a gazillion reasons why Paul's like, okay, this is totally going to come naturally. I'm going to pray that we work on this and get, get better at this. Really, really, this is important. But it isn't interesting. When you look at Paul's commands there, um, it is interesting throughout many of Paul's letters that he's commanding us to let God just do his thing. It's this active-passive thing. I pray that the Holy Spirit does stuff in you and that you, you know, let him do that. By the way, he's going to do stuff in you. Do the math, guys. Okay. Given what Paul was saying in Ephesians about the Holy Spirit structurally changing us so that we can be empowered... To, 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 to love and to, to even understand God's love. When Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit helping us to love and, and, and praying that it changes, was that part of what Christ was talking about in chapter 1 of Acts? When he says that the Holy Spirit is going to empower you and you're going to be witnesses? Let me phrase it this way, maybe. Because when I ask that question, you, know, you see chapter 1 of Acts, and he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you with power, and you're going to be my witnesses. We tend to go, right! Flames of fire, tongues, weird, spectacle. Or we go, oh yeah, Peter's great, powerful, spirit-filled sermon where he's quoting Old Testament stuff, and 3,000 people come to know the Lord, and you go, awesome. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming on you in power, and you'll be my witnesses, Right? And I, I think it is, isn't it? I mean, it'd be silly not to see that, right? Is, is Paul talking about the Spirit even enabling us to understand God's love and to live that out? Is that, is that possibly part of what, Paul, or what Jesus is talking about in chapter 1 of Acts? Is that what you normally think of when you're looking at Jesus saying, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you, and you're going to be my witnesses? Do you? we normally just think of he's going to enable us to love like God loves to reflect God's love to those around us to to genuinely care about people Megan you, you, you said from Ephesians 4 there were some adjectives maybe pull those puppies up here again so when, when you look when you look at Acts when you, when you think about that when Jesus is promising his disciples do you go there in your head that he might be talking about love also because, I'll be honest, I, I tend to go with what's the next immediate thing, is the spectacle that's clearly hollow. Do you, read me some of those things. Alright, Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with the power of the Actually, wait, stop. <laughs> so he's fanning the flame of your abilities? Where, she's going to read some some adjectives here. Where are those coming from in the first place? His glorious riches, right? I'm sorry, go ahead. The uh, power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to... Okay, wait, 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 I gotta go. Before you get to the... So she's going to read some adjectives here in a sec. But how do you access them? Did she just read? Do you... How do you even get to this? Empowered in God's love, right? So being rooted, start with the rooted E. Okay. Um, I pray that you, being rooted and established So this love, is where it's coming from. Go ahead. May have power together with... Where do you get the power, by the way? <laughs> where are you getting this power to do this thing that you're already rooted to do? 
So I'm praying that the Holy Spirit changes you and empowers you so that you're rooted in God so that the Spirit can empower you to do what now? Together with all the Lord's holy people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Yep. And then it goes on to chapter 4. With those adjectives. Yeah. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay. When you think of being humble, is that an expression of power? Or do you tend to think of that as an expression of powerlessness? Yeah, it's, it's an expression of meekness, which is power under control, right? It, it, being humble and being meek is not being weak, because we'd use the word weak for that, right? I mean, it's, it, being humble doesn't mean that you go, I, I don't think very much of myself. You go, no, that's you not thinking much of yourself. Humble means I'm not expressing what I think about myself to try to make you think that I'm amazing. Being humble goes... I'd rather not have the accolades. Because if you sit there and go, I'm not very good at basketball. I'm, by the way, I'm not very good at basketball. That's not humility on my part. If I said I am good at basketball, that's me lying. If I say I'm not very good at basketball, I'm like, that's uh, accuracy. <laughs> if, I, if I could beat Megan in an arm wrestling, and I can't, but if I could beat <laughs> Megan in an arm wrestling competition, if I run around telling everybody, wow, I can totally beat her, oh, um, that's not power under control. That's not... And, and if I go over and I go, oh, spam. See, look, I win. That's not humble. That's not... Humility, then, meekness would, would be to say, I, I, I don't want to look at it that way. That's not the way I think about it. And I don't go around beating up everybody I could. Right? When we talk about Jesus being humble, I don't think that's because he was so weak. We talk about him being meek. I don't think that's because he lacked power. In fact, I think his whole argument, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his whole argument to Pilate was, and to his disciples were, um, I, I totally call down legions of angels, and I'm just not doing that. Right? I, I really don't, I really don't need your help, Peter, with this. Put the sword away, and now i got to fix this guy's ear. Because I could have done this in power like this, and I choose... Not to for various reasons, because that's that's humility, it's meekness. So so when it comes down to this, he's saying the spirit is going to empower us, and if we look at Ephesians, you go, Well, even that humility, that that meekness, how we interact with one another, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, brought by the Holy Spirit, and we can live it out because we're rooted in God, right? Because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, because we're rooted in God, that's even where all this comes from. So what exactly are we supposed to be actively witnessing to others? Because when we talk about having a Christian witness, when we talk about having a powerful Christian witness, when we talk about the Spirit coming on us with power so that we'd have a witness, we, we think about maybe healings or special gifts like that, or, or we think about having words of knowledge, or we think about prophecies, or we think about just having this powerful, spirit-filled sermon that we deliver to our neighbor and then they fall to their knees and accept Christ or whatever. When we think about being empowered to be witnesses, we tend to think about that sort of thing. Can we cross-apply what we just read in Ephesians? What would that look like? It would look like Christ as he was uh, being persecuted and not being conquered. Or he even didn't speak up for himself. Okay. How because what? How could you be empowered to love in such a way that that is actually a witness? And maybe I'm struck. Go ahead. Yeah. What did Jesus say? John three, or thirteen. I'm sorry. John thirteen thirty four through thirty five. Somebody read that. Because you know, if anybody's like, Kevin, I think you're stretching this. You're pushing this. That was just one section in Ephesians. What makes you think that Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit's going to empower you to love? 
and depth, and thus be witnesses. Somebody read me John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Jesus actually makes the connection that how you love, or, or don't, becomes the witness, right? <clears throat> Again, <clears throat> is that something that you normally think of as being rooted in or led by the Holy Spirit? Even though there's places in Scripture where we're told specifically that multiple people are praying for us to be filled so that we love. And Jesus says, how you love will itself be the indicator. Uh, I think all of us probably know but with what we're talking about, where we started off in Acts, I think it's really easy to think about the big things, the showy things, the cool things, the things that I think would be cool to be used by God that way, as opposed to the daily grind where he's calling us to love each other. Well, doesn't maybe sound this flashy, but it is imperative. Because Jesus says, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you will do big, splashy things and people will know you're my disciples because of your big splashy things, yes. He specifically says, people know you're my disciples because of how you love, though, right? Comes straight up and says that one. So, this is not usually our focus when we look at that first chapter of Acts, or even that second chapter of Acts. Because there's a lot of really big, interesting, flamey thingies going on, and it catches our attention, and we focus on that. And those aren't bad things, don't get me wrong. I mean... Yeah, he definitely used the spectacle to draw people to them going, what on earth is going on here? So that Peter could even have an audience to give that sermon to. Oh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the spectacle. It's just we compartmentalize things so much. The twin dangers of that, by the way, is not only that we sit there and say, I never even thought about the love part being a spirit-filled witness. But then also, the flip side of that, that we go, right, when I think of the Holy Spirit, I think of splashy stuff and acts. Or the Holy Spirit is sitting in me, which is, you know, nice. And I never associate him with that daily grind of every day as a witness, every day as an embassy, and every day I pray that I live out that, that unity of the Spirit with the people around me, which means every day I need to be weeding and tweaking and pruning and watering and nurturing because the Holy Spirit is working in me, which means I should be doing stuff because the Holy Spirit is actually doing all the work, but I just need to get out of my way and make sure that the pipes are clean. But we divorce those two. We, we, we sit there, when, when, when we focus just on the sign gifts here, especially for those who believe that, well, there aren't any sign gifts anymore, then you go, wow, that was a really interesting morning, that time that the Holy Spirit did something. Oh, he's with us all the time. And I just go, ah, that's great. Presence of Christ. And that's about it. But you see where looking at this holistically means you go, wait, every part of this I need to be every day in the Spirit. And it comes naturally. I don't need to make it happen. But I need to make sure that I'm nurturing and I need to make sure I've got a healthy perspective on this, right? How does that inform your reading of things like, I don't know, what comes next? Chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. Somebody read me Acts 2, 44 through 47. I got it. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, broke bread in their homes, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, why was the Lord adding to their number daily? Because of tons of fire? Yeah, it, isn't that section? I mean, we, we, we talk about fellowship, we talk about uh, the after effects of what the Holy Spirit did in chapter 2. Which is a terrifying concept, isn't it? The after effects of what he punctiliarly did. And then the church was cool and did this stuff for a while. 
instead of looking at Acts 2, 44-47 as the Holy Spirit actively working in them through fellowship, right? Actively working in them to love one another. What kinds of stuff did they do in love? They sold property. And shared it. And they shared the profits, yeah. What else did they do? Yeah. What else did they do? Oh, it's almost like the unity of the Spirit that Paul talks about. And when Paul talked about the unity of the Spirit, he connected that with loving hearts and loving acts, right? So, 3,000 people came to know the Lord the day that Peter gave that really awesome sermon, and that's cool. People were coming to know the Lord every day because of what move of the Spirit? What was the Spirit doing in them? Actively loving, actively unified, actively breaking bread with one another, actively sharing everything in common with one another, actively living well with the people around them. They were loving the brothers and sisters actively and well and consciously. They were loving the people outside of the body of Christ well and actively and consciously. And strangely, that was a good witness, wasn't it? Which is interesting because then you even get into like, in First Peter, we was talking about you know, live such good lives among the pagans. We can get focused on that that works-oriented thing. You should do be such a good person and act so right that people around you say, "Oh, tell me about this Jesus." But the other way of looking at this, if you look at it all together, is Peter saying, "You know, let the Holy Spirit work in you. Just live like you actually believe this stuff on a daily basis, and you will look different, right?" Here in Acts, we don't see that this is the ripple effects of the Holy Spirit having worked at Pentecost. <coughs> I would argue this is the Holy Spirit working right here. I mean, haven't we said this a gazillion times? Fellowship is not just the food deacon. It's not just you're in charge of making sure that the crock pots are plugged in. It's like, well, why do we why do we even eat together? Why are we eating together today? Why would we do that? It's not just, well, because we like each other and we want to hang. Great, yes, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the idea is because we're one body and we need to be connected. We need to actively love one another. We need to engage with one another. And not just in our own strength, but we need to let the Holy Spirit flow through that. Empower that. When we have our trivia night coming up, hopefully it's not just having fun doing trivia, though there's nothing wrong with that. Hopefully it's building relationships with one another in the body of Christ, it's fellowship, it's, it's koinonia, it's, it's, it's developing that. And that's awesome. And that, in and of itself, should be a witness to anybody else that comes. That not just, well, you guys are a lot of fun, but, well, this is, this is a family. This has a different vibe than when I did the trivia night at Fox Pub, even though it's the same person running it. Is it just that we're in a church building and that's a holy place? Hopefully not. Hopefully it's the Holy Spirit working because we're seeing this as an active embassy. And we're praying that the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, and that that becomes its own witness. I know I keep pounding that same drum, but we, we compartmentalize all those things away, oftentimes, don't we? This is fellowship. This, the Holy Spirit did that really interesting thing that one time. Holy Spirit lives in me. What is that? Oh, he's kind of like Jiminy Cricket. You know, it's like, but if you put all the pieces of the Bible together, you see the Holy Spirit acting in you every day, all the time, in everything that you're doing. Which might be why Paul is saying, in part, I kind of like you to be praying all the time, so that you're reminding yourself that this is supposed to be, you know, clearing the conduit all the time. Yes? It's just a different way than we think about it. And I just want to encourage us, at least for one morning, to stop and think about those first couple of chapters of Acts, and when Jesus talks about you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be my witnesses. Then we go, wow, it's going to be flaming tongues of fire. <sighs> yeah. But it's also, you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the love that you show one another will demonstrate to, to other people that you are my disciples. If I can link John with Acts with Ephesians. Which, frankly, I think I can. <laughs> okay. So let me do me a favor. Read Acts 5, 42 through 6-1. Somebody who hasn't read nothing yet. Acts 5, 42 through 6-1. Day after day, in the temple courts and from 
house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Christ. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, help me out here. What's going on in the early church? Well, let's start with the good stuff. What's the good stuff? Teaching and preaching the good news. Okay. Jesus Christ. Okay. Which is which is good, and they're constantly yeah. meeting together and doing this, which is awesome. What else? What other good stuff is? Okay, that's awesome. What else? What's going on with the Grecian widows, I suppose? Or the, or the Hebraic widows? They're getting which is awesome, isn't it? Church is actively going around helping people and doing stuff and teaching, which I like. I mean, it's acts of love, isn't it? I mean, would we think that the preaching can be filled with the Holy Spirit? That they're doing this preaching in the temple and then going to the house? Do we then make a disconnect and say that the acting of love and the distribution of food would not be filled with the Holy Spirit? Probably not. Probably wouldn't actively say, yes, no, it's not. Okay, do you actively, consciously think, yes, probably was. We can think, oh, the, the preaching. And hopefully it's spirit-filled and powerful. You know, right, and this is acts of love of handing food to poor people. And you go, and that was really nice. Could it also be spirit-filled acts of, I'm not saying it was, but it could be. What I'm saying is, is the fact that we oftentimes stop and go, this is cool, that is nice stuff. You know, this is the Holy Spirit working, and this is church being nice. You know, don't artificially make that kind of disconnect. All right, what's going wrong negatively? What's going on here? That They're only giving out the food to people that they already know and that are like that. Why would you do that? How, given everything we've just talked about from Ephesians and what Paul said, I, I, I pray the Holy Spirit does in you, which will have a, an embassy to those around you, that Jesus says your love for each other will be an embassy to those around you. Uh, Acts 2, 44-47, you, you guys are breaking bread together, and it's loving, and it's active. How could these possibly sit next to each other? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And I'm pretty sure, yeah, Peter hasn't even had his vision yet. Nope. Calling him to go to Cornelius. So. But how could. But these are other Jews. Grecian Jews. But they're still Jews. And, 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 go ahead, what are you going to say? It could be totally prejudiced. Could. Uh, or it could be totally. They didn't know about the Grecian Jews because they were told. The people passing out were the Hebrew Jews, and they knew the Hebrew women, they didn't know. So it could be there somewhere in between. Or somewhere in between. Yeah, it could be. It could be they're like, well, those aren't my people. Let their people handle their people. It could be I didn't even know what was going on in their lives. Could be something in between where you're like, I I don't know them. I'm not actively going, ah, let them starve. Yeah. And I'm not saying I don't, I didn't even know they existed. Could it be that it's like I genuinely never even thought about them. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I didn't have the authority to but why even make that disconnect? And, and, and Michael's absolutely right. Is you know, it, They just don't have it all figured out yet. I mean, we see that throughout Acts where they're like, hey, we should have a council and discuss. How does this, this part even work? You know, but why would there even be that disconnect between the Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Jews? We're all just Jews, aren't we? Um, potentially, though... Pretty much everybody's speaking Greek. I mean, even the Romans are speaking Greek to them, speak Latin to each other. <laughs> uh, but it, it, everybody's speaking Greek. Greek is the lingua franca. France. Anyway, <laughs> Greek is the lingua franca. The day everybody is speaking Greek to one another. Um, in fact, if you remember in, in Philippians, Paul made the point of going, hey, my family, we actually spoke Hebrew. Drop the mic. Um, because that would have been unique, even amongst even amongst uh, 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 you know, very Jewish, Jewish, Jewish people. Even the Hebraic Jews would have been speaking Greek for the most part.
today, because now we do have it all together. Um, do we still find disconnect? Do we still find that we say, um, why would I give to that Baptist ministry? I'm not actually Baptist. Um, and it's not that, I mean, sure, there could be some people who go, Baptist, I hate Baptist, they're evil. Other people who are like, I never even, it never even occurred to me. Why would I even think that? But I'd say most of us would fall in, fall in the category of, I've got my church, why would I? I mean, they've got their, I, this, is, this is my group. It's not evil. But when you start doing that, can't people, like, fall through cracks? If everybody thinks somebody else has got them, Hey, I, there's biblical precedent for somebody going, Hey, I thought you had Jesus. I thought you were bringing him home. We left him? Well, now we got to go back. You know, people fall through cracks. Even even really good parents mess this up. I don't know, man. I, I had James. You got James. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Um, in the next time I lived in Chicago, the church that I went to of different denominations um, actually talked about the distribution of food in their neighborhood. Yeah. And they knew it was something that if you just had one church that said, I'm going to feed everybody all the time, we couldn't do it. Right. And so they actually coordinated together and said, my church had Monday nights. We had a Monday night meal. And other churches in the area had different days of the week. And they coordinated so that every day of the week, that's awesome. But that takes a little consciousness on your part. You have to actually stop and think about that a little bit, right? But so people are coming to know the Lord, the church is growing, food is being distributed, and there's unity of the spirit. Except somehow there's an entire chunk of people that are getting left out of stuff. How can we avoid that in general? Here in, in particular at our church, in general as a church, how do we avoid how do we avoid either the, I despise anybody that doesn't look just like us, I never even thought about them, or that middle part of, um, just never really, I, I assumed that somebody else had them. How do you, how do you avoid that? I mean, Mike, Michael just gave us one suggestion where you actually coordinate between churches. What are some other things? Just how do you avoid, if you're being filled with the Spirit and your, your love is supposed to be Spirit rooted. How do you how do you avoid segmenting out your love? It's an application question. Okay, start. If we're supposed to be rooted in the spirit, start off by being led by the spirit. It's not just a matter of what makes sense to me or what. Start by saying, even if I'm talking about the distribution of food, it doesn't have to just be distribution of food. Even the seemingly mundane things. You go, well, what does the Spirit want me to do? Let's do that. What else? Maybe this is more nuts and bolts than you mean. I don't know. But uh, so we have different elders and we have different deacons who are in charge of different areas. But to see that as an area into itself that doesn't at least have a toe in just about every other ministry, uh, to be conscientious of that and seeing that you're ultimately all working towards the same goal, coming at it differently. If those aren't interwoven to some degree, then I think you get that separation where cracks occur. Yep. So actively integrate. I was just even thinking about even like the manual ministry that happens. It's a, I though I want to do something about it mindfully. It's like oh, it's, I, I, don't, I don't have the time yet, but I'm constantly praying for it and constantly being mindful of it so that if something does come up, I can I can lend a hand. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just kind of that awareness, I guess. Anything of being able to, yeah. Okay. I think also from the context, it seems like this is coming at a time when things seem to be going really well, and I think maybe they thought they could kind of relax a bit, like yeah, we, things are great, we've got this, we'll just keep doing what we're doing, and, and but weren't. Maybe maybe we're seeking the Lord from an attitude of like, well, is there anything that we could change? Is there anything that you 
And, and from an organizational communication standpoint, I mean, a, a, a good uh, seminar teacher would come in and say, you just need to always be self-reflecting. You need to always be engaged in the system. You need to, and that's great. But I'm going to try to link some of the things we've said here. It's not just we need to always look at our ministries. We need to always look at what we're doing and say, is there a way that we can do this better? Have we become stale? Have we lost sight of what we originally started with this? Sure. But maybe at its core, we need to say, with everything that we're doing, are we actually being led by the Spirit? Is this really what the Spirit wants us to do? I don't want to just do some sort of conference where we look at leadership models that we got from Fortune 500 companies. I kind of want to stop and say, all the time, wait, are we being led by the Spirit in this? Is this what God wants us to do? We don't want to just grab uh, deacons that we say, well, she can do it. You know, it's like, no, no. Is this what God wants us here? We want to bathe this with prayer. Michael, you have an idea. I can't really. Wait, Donna's an electrician. What? I don't, even if I don't necessarily know how to meet that need, to stop and say, wait, do I know how other people might be able to do that? Let me cross apply two different things there. Because if you remember, in, in, again, went through Philippians, Paul was talking about actively loving. Look around for people you can love well. It's not just a matter of going, well, you need to make their priorities your priorities. He's like, no, 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 no. You need to actively go and seek out what's going on around you so that you can try to meet those needs. I'm going to cross apply that with what did they got what did these guys end up doing as a result? In verses two through four of chapter six. Go ahead and read it, somebody. Sarah. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to the prayer and ministry of the word. Okay, so the elders are saying that waiting tables is beneath them. I've so heard that preached before. How so? Um, you're the pastor. You should be set apart to study and spend time in the word and stand in the gap and bring that word to us on Sundays. This is not what your office is. And, and I think there is partial truth to that. I, I think that, that some of that makes sense, but to see this as a lesser ministry is problematic. Okay, so how do you how do you how do you support the concept behind this without falling into this wrong mindset? I told you before that I had my, my pastoral mentor said as long as you're willing to joyfully clean the bathrooms, you're fine. It's like you just as a pastor, even as a senior pastor. You see that somebody needs to clean the bathroom, and you're there, do it. And as long as you don't think that's beneath you, you've got the right heart. And yet, how do you how do you follow what they're trying to do here? What are, what are they trying to do here? If not say that waiting tables is beneath us as an elder, because Randy would go, I'm not doing that, I'm special. Well, the, the way they're handling it, it seems like they are I was thinking economics and utility of, of the person and their abilities. 
resources that are used if they're to delegate. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say, just like what we were talking about a minute ago, like if Donna's an electrician, then she can help better than me, who is not an electrician. And so I shouldn't waste my time not helping. I should go do something else. Who's the important person in an operating theater? Would that be the surgeon or the anesthesiologist or the person that makes sure that you actually have you know, like utensils and, and uh, instruments there? Yes. Why? I mean, you could do a surgery if you're the surgeon and you have the instruments there. You don't really need to have an anesthesiologist, do you? <laughs> okay, you got an anesthesiologist, you got a surgeon, you don't necessarily need the in instruments, do you? You've got the instruments and the anesthesiologist, you don't necessarily need the, sermon, the surgeon, right? Mine's the Geico. What? It's like, oh, are you, are you the best tattoo artist? I'm alright. <laughs> <laughs> the idea being, are there things that you say, well, this one is more mission critical in some ways? If you have no surgeon, there will be no surgery, arguably. But other things you go, yeah, but the surgeon has no way to actually cut you open. There will be no surgery. Yeah, pokey pokey. doesn't work like that. So, so, so to sit there and see this less as hierarchies, though there are hierarchical elements to this, but less as hierarchies of what's the important job and what's the less important job, and more as, wait, how about we divide up the labor here in ways that make some sense. That an elder is looking at the larger picture, is praying, is teaching the word and things, that the deacons are more nuts and bolts, making sure the ministries are, are going on, doesn't mean that one is lesser than another. And even if you call the elders overseers, and they are literally supervising people, it's not necessarily because, well, they're better, or it's a better role, or that the deaconship is a stepping stone to eldership, which terrifies me that there are still churches that do that. There's churches where they're like, well, in, in the steps toward getting to be a, a pastor or a priest or things, well, first of all, obviously you've got to be a deacon, and then we'll move you toward, and it's like, what? What were you going to say? Also, it says here that it would be, it would not be right for them to neglect their ministry. So in the same way that the surgeon is important for the surgery, it would be wrong of them to neglect the life-changing surgeries that they're called to do in order to be a plumber that brings running water to somebody's house. Yep. Nor do I want to neglect the feeding of people that need food in order to do the other. Yes. Uh, I think it also kind of comes back to just the ability to the Doesn't it? Kind of like an elder uh, is kind of just like the head servant of all the other servants. The butler, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean. Uh, as an elder, you kind of have to look at, like, uh, I'm not actually above everybody else. It's an opportunity to serve and direct where other servants ought to be. And as other servants, you need to be looking like, you know, and I need to be you know, mindful enough to say, yes, I'm willing to go where you I mean, actually, I, you chuckled at the butler thing. That's the butler's job is to oversee the staff. And so it's like, oh, so you're kind of like the person who owns the house. I'm nothing like the person that owns the house. I am staff, but I oversee to make sure the other people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it's interesting, then, that you look at this and say, um, they're looking for, and they're deacons from diaconoids, servants. What kind of qualifications are they looking for? You kind of alluded to this earlier. What are they saying? They're looking for people who are wise and are full of the spirit to wait on tables. Why? Because this is a Sunday school class about the Holy Spirit. Why? You say, we need somebody to wait tables. So look for people filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? That goes back to that ambassadorship thing. In everything you do, what matters is that you're sharing love, the love of Christ has been Today, it's a key element that didn't make it in there, and I'm not picking on you. But 
you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit because while you're doing this act of love, you might be able to be spirit-filled and do something spiritual. And, and I, 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 but I mean, you're like, oh, and then you could talk to them about Jesus. Or you could do. We need people to do an act of love here. So let's find people that have the spirit in them to do this act of love. Doesn't that suggest something about where that act of love is coming from? What we're looking for? Because you're never just looking for somebody to wait tables here, are you? You're looking for somebody to live out the fruit of the spirit in their lives in this act of love, right? I don't want somebody who can just do it. You know, Alex could do it. He's standing right there. Alex, go help them. And that's not bad. But maybe Ariel does this because she has the Holy Spirit in her. She goes, this is an embassy of Christ. This is the embassy of Christ. People will know that we're Christians by how we love. They'll see this. This is itself part of the ministry. And I want people who are wise enough that they can know how to do other things while they're in the midst of this and take advantage of the situation and all these different things. But in and of itself, this is an act of love. And in and of itself, we want it to be a spiritual act of love, right? How does it reflect everything that we're saying when we say the Holy Spirit is empowering them? We want spirit-filled, spirit-empowered people to do this physical, tangible love ministry. I guess I might have already answered that, I suppose. But I mean, we, we, we disconnect them. Or at least we don't actively, consciously connect them in our minds. When maybe we should. When we're trying to find a, 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 trying to find a deacon, we're not necessarily looking for somebody who's good at the thing we're asking them to do. Somebody we think, no, the Spirit moves through them in the thing we're asking them to step into. And if we look at Acts 5 to 6, um... What, is, what are we told specifically about Stephen and his qualifications for waiting tables in Acts 6, 5 through 6? What are his qualifications? Uh, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Because we're looking for people that the Spirit is empowering, right? To do these acts of love. Are we as conscious about that today? Do we, do we look for people who are full of the Holy Spirit? And if we do, how do we operationalize that? We normally operationalize that as they, we see sign gifts, they're powerful when they speak, they're extroverted, they're whatever. If not, what should we look for? Because apparently, we're looking for people who are spirit-filled enough to wait tables, right? The spiritual gift of waiting tables. We're looking for people who the spirit enables to wait tables. Or do building grounds, or lead youth, or fellowship, or kind of need to look at people that God is using spiritually in these things without making those kinds of dichotomies or, or breaking it apart that way. Why is it significant that none of the names of these deacons is Jewish? All these names are Greek. So what did they do? I mean, what did they actively then consciously do? If... if By, by including Greek Jews in the process. You know, it's like, wait. If there are people going, ah, oh, I don't hate, I hate these people. Well, find people that don't feel that way. How about that? If there are people who are like, never even knew they existed. How about we find people that you go, well, you exist in that realm. Or at the very least, people who are like, I am conscious of things and I want to. We are going to consciously take steps to consciously find people that are part of this demographic. We're, we're going to make steps to, to engage at a level, even in the personality we've got, that we aren't already engaging in. So you go, oh, okay, so what we're looking for, you're suggesting we need to find demographic you know, connections with people. No, I don't get too lost on this. It's not that it's like, yes, we need to make decisions based on quotas. No, it's not where I'm going with this. But the idea of saying, we're looking for spirit-filled people, Spirit-connected, spirit-empowered to do even the physical, mundane things. But that doesn't mean that we also don't sit there and go, well, wait, let's use a little bit of brain power here also and figure out who won't allow this to fall through the cracks. What's the smart move to do some of this, even as we're looking for people who are specifically spirit-filled? And I, I think it's, it's not part of the issue with 
the Christian Jews, the, the, the widows being forgotten, it's, it's, it's not just about the widows. It's like a larger, it, it's a larger statement about that community as a whole. And by, by giving authority to men from that community, it is, it is showing humility and giving honor to them. Mm-hmm. And saying, well, we, you, you are part of, you, you are part of us, and, and you're worthy to be fellow laborers with us. So showing mutual respect, it's consciously plugging holes you've just realized existed. And it's making sure that I'm not just including, and they need to be Greek in their job qualifications. That's not what that verse is or saying. But we're, we, it starts with, we're looking for people who are wise. We're looking for people who have God's Holy Spirit in them. So in all this, I'm going to kind of close with this. In all this, to look at this and say, we are going to have the Holy Spirit in us as Christians. And we are going to be witnesses. What kind of witnesses we are is kind of up to us. Are we conscious about what we're doing? except realizing that even in the midst of that, as we nurture or don't, as we, as we facilitate or don't, that all of this is coming from God. All this, if we do anything right, it's, it's because we're rooted in God. And we're just demonstrating God's love. And even Paul says, in the midst of doing that, I pray that the Holy Spirit structurally change you to even enable you to be able to be that rooted in God and be filled with God's fullness and overflow into the people around you. And don't make disconnects where we sit there and say, well, this is spiritual and this is mundane. You know, the most mundane thing I can think of is waiting tables. And they said, yes, we need to find people who are wise and filled with the Spirit to do that. So maybe see this more holistically than we oftentimes do. And see that the love, the tangible love, the tangible acts of love themselves are at least a large chunk of the witness itself. Get lost in that and think, yeah, the witness is building a bridge in Paraguay. That was the witness. Now you've gone too far the other way. Because again, we're segmenting out. How about we see the whole thing as a consistent, constant act of trying to live out the Holy Spirit living within us? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the example of people who, at least for 47 seconds, got it right. And I pray, help us, Lord, to have our own 47 seconds. I pray, help us to to get an idea of what your heart is for our church and to live that out. And I pray that you give us the wisdom to every day stop and make sure that we've cleared the prayer trails, that we've, we've unclogged our pipes, that we've polished the mirror, that every day we just do our level best to make sure that you and your work are unimpeded through our lives. Help us to give you the glory and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.